Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. So by now, you know I'm back from vacation. Um, It was a really, really great time. Uh, We... With some, a few other people, including um, our dear friends, uh, uh, Ron and Pam Bailey. Ron is a science correspondent for Reason. Um, and he's only been on this podcast once, but for reasons that are too complicated and too boring to get into here. But uh, I should have him back because he's one of my favorite people. And um, it was really great. It was really beautiful. Uh, it was good for me sort of psychologically. It was the longest I think I've gone without writing anything, professionally at least. Um, since I don't know, um, my honeymoon. <laughs> um, I mean, I did go on that whitewater rafting trip about four years ago, which was completely off the grid. So maybe that was the longest I went, um, since my honeymoon. But anyway, it's a rare thing for me not to file anything anywhere. I go through a kind of psychological withdrawal. Also, I don't think I mentioned this, but a few years ago, I've always had mild aquaphobia issues ever since I was a little kid. I had some accidents as a kid. Um, and so I've always, it always takes me a little longer to get used to swimming. I'm an okay swimmer, you know, done lots of ocean and river and stuff, taught my kid how to swim. So it's not like I can't swim. It's not like I can't, you know, uh, do water stuff. But a few years ago, I kind of had this weird panic attack in the ocean. Um, and I've been much more, it's, it's weird. It's, it's hard to explain to people who haven't been through it. It's very much like my, I've talked about this before, my theory of writer's block, which is that, um, and I, I, I know this only, I'm not saying this makes sense for everybody or even anybody, but it makes sense to me. It's just how I see it, is I don't believe that writer's block exists, but I think fear of writer's block creates writer's block. Um, and if you convince yourself, it's sort of like, you know, when you're, try to talk to teenagers about, you know, don't turn this into a thing. If you make it a thing, this is the way my dad always used to talk to me, then it be- has power over you. If, it's, if, it's, if, it, if, if you don't invest cosmic importance in something, then it's not cosmically important. But if you start to freak out about, oh my gosh, I can't write, um, that's, that fear of that is the actual thing. And it's sort of the same thing with water. I am not afraid of water. I'm afraid of being afraid of water. And... Um, I had this really bad thing a couple years ago, a few years ago where I almost drowned or I felt like I almost drowned because I had a panic attack pretty far out in the ocean. Um, and now I am constantly afraid of that happening again. And so it was pretty good. We would, we did a lot of snorkeling. Um, British Virgin Islands are just really, really beautiful. Um, 
and we did a lot of snorkeling, but the first time I went out there, I couldn't get my breathing right. Uh, my mask wasn't fitting right. Um, it's been a while since I snorkeled and I just started to feel my heart go and my pulse going in my ears. And I was like, all right, um, let's call it a day today. Try again tomorrow. And by the end I was, did a lot of snorkeling and it was great. So it was like sort of psychologically for me, it just felt very good. I'm not saying I want, ran a marathon or anything, but I think people who've been through something analogous kind of get where I'm coming from. Um, and people who haven't, haven't been, so there you have it. I don't really care. I'll spare you the rest about my lavish um, vacation, but it was, it was, it was great. I didn't get super tan, did burn the hell out of the tops of my feet. Um, and, uh, um, and I did some reading though, not like my wife. I think my wife read four books while I read like half of one and a third of another or something like that. So the other thing I'm, I'm just catching you up right before we get into whatever. And I, I got to tell you, I'm warning you in advance. I'm in one of those moods, been in one of these moods since I got back, partly because I was rested, partly because I felt like I was missing everything, partly because I didn't write and I didn't podcast for a week. And I just getting backed up with, with all of the just uh, rank punditry that was just accumulating in my cranium. Um, so I feel like I am poised for um, a Castro-length uh, diatribe, um, but I'm not going to do that, or at least I'm going to try not to do that, but I just have, I have, I have um, so many grievances and issues and, and things that are, I, I, I got to unload, and I'm going to try to figure out how to do that between this and the G-file. The other thing that I got to reveal this week, finally, um, after heavy caution from my lawyer and all that, was that I was subpoenaed by Dominion, um, and I was deposed by Dominion in their lawsuit against Fox. I can't talk about the details of it. Um, I can assure people that, to the best of my knowledge, I did not provide them with anything sort of earth-shattering, huge news. Um, and there's a reason why, at least so far in these filings, my um, name hasn't come up um, because I don't think I was all that pertinent. The reason why I got subpoenaed, I have, I've, I've been led to believe, is that I wrote um, a Goldberg file um, where I just said, screw it. In fact, that was with the first words of the Goldberg file we can put in the show notes. And I went on a tirade about how I know that there are a lot of people at Fox who lie, who lie. I don't mean lie about... Um, necessarily election fraud, although some people clearly lie about election fraud. Um, I mean, they don't represent their actual views on TV. I did not have Dominion stuff or Smartmatic stuff or any of that in mind when I um, was writing that. But I could understand if you're a lawyer for Dominion, you look at that piece where I'm talking about how I know these people are, 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 are not telling the truth on TV. Um, and you'd be like, hmm, tell me more. So they asked me to tell them more. And it became a huge thing. I, again, I can't get into all the details yet, but it was an unrelenting and insufferable ass ache for a big chunk of the last year or so, a little more than a year. Um, and some of it had to do with the fact that I didn't want to get, if I had to hand over all of my emails and texts and all these kinds of things, we were worried that Steve would get you know, subpoenaed and Steve, who did get subpoenaed, and that's a, again, it's a long story, um, he has a different role than I do. He's a reporter. He doesn't want to give up his communications. I don't want to give up my communications. I didn't want to give up my communications either. But, you know, Steve's a reporter, was a reporter for 25 years. He has these established ground rules with lots of people that they can talk to him in confidence and all that kind of thing, including other people in the media. And 
Um, and so it became this big legal hassle, big financial hassle. Um, and I have to say, I have newfound sympathy for the marginal players in various DC controversies and scandals who get called up, you know, in independent counsel investigations and other things like that, who are not central to anything. They're basically just sort of background players, um, sort of, they'd be extras in the movie, but they got a lawyer up. And I remember the first time I had a, and I, I like my lawyer a lot. He's a good lawyer. Uh, I'm not going to get into all that, but like, I remember sitting there in one of our first prep meetings, um, thinking, okay, what, what I'm being charged here, I could light, I, what I was trying to figure out whether I could light a $5 bill or a $1 bill and then light the next one when that one burnt out like a chain smoker um, for the entire hour. And I, would, I was trying to figure out whether that would cost me more or less than these conversations. And, um, and there was all sorts of compliance. It was just a huge, huge pain in the ass. And so the I, I, reason I bring this up is, one, because I can now talk about it somewhat publicly, um, though not as expansively as I'd like, but two, because, you know, I get a lot of email from people who listen to this podcast who say, you know, what is with all these sort of cryptic things about things going on that you can't talk about? Well, obviously, as I've explained before, the top one was my mom was dying. And, you know, and there was a lot of stuff which we don't have to get into that I was dealing with. That's why I was constantly going back up to New York and whatnot. Um, and then this was like, you know, it was... It was not a close second, you know, that the stress of uh, my mom's, you know, slow deterioration and all of that was leaps and bounds worse than anything else. But uh, the hassle factor of this Dominion crap certainly made everything a little worse and, um, and was a huge source of sort of stress and complication and endless friggin' phone calls with, with Steve about strategery and and constitutional principles and brand and blah, 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 blah. So I just want to come clean with you guys because I would always, you know, what's going on? Friends of mine would text me, what are you talking about with the stuff that you can't talk about? And, you know, that kind of thing. And so um, I probably had other things on the list of things that I had mentioned that I couldn't talk about, but those, those were the two big ones um, for the time being. Um, anyway, so... I guess I should talk a little bit, and this is this is where my biggest fear of uh, Castroite Lageria comes in. Is I've been trying to write a G file, as as I often tell people, I don't like to write G files in advance of the day they're due. Um, but this was important enough that I felt like I should get to work on it, and I just can't do it. At least I can't do it right now. I got too much anger, um, too much "I told you so" running through my veins. Um, too much contempt, uh, and, uh, and also just like, I, I really think if you haven't read them, just read the, like the first, you know, get past the weird witchcraft rune, um, blood magic stuff, or it's not blood magic. It's, you know, text magic stuff in the beginning with all the legal references, and then just pick up with the narrative and the two filings and read them for yourself. You know, I have to say that like, part of my problem is, is that, um, I don't think there's been much commentary out there that's superior than the narrative that the lawyers actually lay out. And I am totally open. And I've said this at every possible opportunity that it may not be as cut and dried as dominion is laying it out because 
It shouldn't be, right? I mean, literally, Dominion is filing the best case it can for its position. It is under no obligation to make Fox's arguments for it. And so that means there is probably some stuff that is left out of this narrative that they're constructing that would be beneficial to Fox. I suspect for, uh, for, for well-informed and experienced reasons that, you know, there's a reason why they focus so much on the opinion side of Fox, because I think the news side was struggling, and, it's, and that's clear in, the, in some of these, these filings. Um, the news side was struggling to um, combat all of the crazy that the opinion side and the executives were fomenting or enabling. And, um, you know, that's why Tucker Carlson wanted to get Jackie Heinrich fired for a fact check of, of bogus election fraud stuff. That's why Kristen Fisher got in trouble and was yelled at. That's why Leland Vitter was yelled at. Um, that's why, uh, you know, Bill Salmon was pushed out of Fox. Um, that's why our, my friend and colleague twice over Chris Starwalt was fired. I said to Chris the other day, um, we were talking about something else, but I was just like, dude, let me first just congratulate you on the heels of these things, um, for your restraint and not climbing a clock tower outside of, of Fox news headquarters. Because, um, I mean, at the end of the day, people with journalistic integrity were punished, sidelined, silenced, um, or fired. And uh, people without journalistic integrity and arguably without integrity, period, were uh, enabled, appeased, promoted, or um, compromised with. And it's really disgusting to me. And it's sad. You know, uh, Paul Ryan's got a lot of grief for his interview with, with Charlie Sykes about believing that um, he needs to fix Fox from the inside. I think Paul Ryan, who's, you know, a friend of mine, I mean, we're not super buddy buddy but you know we've known each other for a while and we like each other i think he's sincere in all of that i honestly do um for all sorts of reasons and i just think he's he's probably just simply deluding himself unless um you know there is some red wedding type move coming down the pike which again I, this is just all free association i'm just spewing this stuff as it comes into my cranium but you know rupert murdoch in the past admittedly when he was considerably younger, I mean, I mean considerably younger, but when he, certainly when he was younger, because we were all younger in the past. You can do the math yourself. But when he has hit crisis moments, he's been capable of doing really bold, audacious, risky things to, to pull his bacon out of the fire. I mean, that's one of the things I think that that succession show gets right about their Rupert Murdoch-style character. I remember my dad telling me years ago about how the founding newspaper of the Murdoch Empire, the paper that sort of Rupert grew up in and that, his, and that Rupert's dad had founded, started to lose money, he just closed it, you know, totally unsentimentally. Um, a better example, and I, if the details of that are wrong, it's because my, my faulty memory, but I don't, think, I don't think they are directionally wrong. You know, a better point is the phone hacking scandal from News of the World, you know, this profitable newspaper that, that Murdoch owned. Um, that did really bad things in the UK. And um, he just shut down the whole paper to, and fired a gazillion people um, to, to cauterize the wound on that thing. Now, I don't think Murdoch can fire anybody right now because it would look like an admission of guilt, or at least that's what the conventional wisdom is. I have some questions about that, but you know, 
put a pin in that for a second. But so unless Paul thinks he can, or Paul Ryan thinks he can orchestrate something like that, I think uh, it's a, it's a lost cause for the foreseeable future. Um, I don't think with Susan Scott, the CEO of Fox, and the current opinion lineup and in- incentive structure at Fox that uh, the place is meaningfully salvageable. And I have zero doubt that if Trump were to uh, get the nomination and win again, that it would all go back for the most part to the way it was. But anyway, getting back to this point about like um, these filings, um, I still think, and I'm still willing to defend people on the news side from the the nastiest charges. This doesn't mean I don't have criticisms. I just think a lot of the criticism. Okay, I'll back up. This is one of the problems with this whole thing, right? And um, um, Steyerwalt and I are talking about doing a a special conversation about all of this with maybe we'll get Steve in too and just call it the Festivus episode. Um, but part of the problem is, is there were a bunch of people for the last 20 years. When I say a bunch of people, I mean a lot of elected Democrats, a lot of thumb-sucking high priests of, of um, the journalism establishment who have heaped nothing but scorn, ridicule, and outrage at Fox when it was either unwarranted or wildly exaggerated. Um, I am not saying Fox was perfect prior to 2015. It was not. Um, I got in trouble, you know, for criticizing fellow Fox people um, to the point where I got chastised by management for it. You know, before it's, it's you know, there, there are problems with, there were always problems with the place. And I think we can all agree that, 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 that Roger Ailes was a flawed human being. But the response to Fox from its critics was wildly overblown and often missed the point or was just stupid. And the one of the, I have to say, minor problem, you know, tragedies of all of this is a lot of those people who were wrong for 15, 18 years about Fox can now say they're utterly vindicated because of what Fox has become. But Fox wasn't like this for my first six, seven years at Fox. Um, and it wasn't like this for its first years in general. Um, and I'll give you an example. So like the other morning, you know, for, for understandable reasons, CNN is having me on a lot to talk about this stuff and I'm, I'm going to have to cool it pretty soon because part of my deal about joining CNN was I was not going to become a professional Fox critic. I don't want to do that. Steve doesn't want to do that. Starwalt really doesn't want to do that. I don't think we get any credit from any of the Fox defenders for how nuanced and restrained we have been in all of this. Um, because there's such a circle of the wagons tribal thing, you were the four Fox or against it kind of thing. And I can get back to that in a second too. And I don't care about getting the credit for it. I'm just saying that I'm just saying it as a fact that that's the case. Um, and I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to do fan service for, you know, you know, Brian Stelter's, you know, biggest fans about Fox. Cause I think Brian Stelter was wrong about Fox for a long time in all sorts of ways. Again, we'll get back to that in a second. But anyway, so the other morning I was on uh, um, the morning show and they put me on at 6 a.m. And it was fine because they could do it from where I'm sitting right now, you know, by remote. And I think probably for the first and last time in uh, pundit history, I was on with the other guest was um, a professor of Gouch- at Goucher College, where, which is my alma mater. And I just don't think, you know, there's going to be a lot of more opportunities for student former students and current professors of Goucher to be on TV at the same time um it was kind of funny anyway this guy 
was a media critic for the Baltimore Sun for a long time, and now he's a media studies or something professor at Goucher. And he went on a tear about how Fox was never a journalistic operation. Fox was never serious about, you know, reporting and, and, and objective journalism and yada, 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 yada. Now, objective is a loaded word, and I'm not sure he said it, but you get the point. He was just like, it was a political operation from the beginning. Roger Ailes started as a political operation, blah, 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 blah. I just think it's not true. And I said, I think, you know, you know, I said something along the lines of, you know, heaven forbid a Goucher alum criticize a Goucher professor, but I just think that's wildly overstated. Um, it's just, it's not what Fox was. Um, and I think there were a lot of people who, it was so funny, and I wrote about this. I mean, I went looking for it. Again, I'm not going to write the G-File about this today because I just can't, I can't get into the weeds on it. So I'm venting some of the stuff I've been thinking about all week. But um, I wrote about this going back to, even when I was a CNN contributor, prior to my Fox contributorship thing, in like 2003, I wrote about this. Um, and I probably wrote about it earlier than that about how um, there were all these um, FCC protests about Fox getting this license or that license or being allowed on this cable system or that cable system. And the argument from the left was consistently that, um, uh, I mean, there were a lot of arguments, but one of the main arguments was we need diversity in media. And that's why we have to stop Fox. And I always thought this was hilarious because... Fox was the one outlier of, of the 800-pound of the gorillas of the heavy hitter media that diversified the ideological contours of mainstream media. Um, you know, look, again, up until fairly recently, for almost a century, the mainstream media was defined, was, was dominated by five, six organizations that were all um, within, I don't know, a square mile, two square miles of each other in Midtown Manhattan, CBS, ABC, NBC, the New York Times, Newsweek, Time. Um, and then you throw in, you know, the Washington Post and, you know, if you go back far enough, the Chicago Tribune, you know, and of course the AP and that kind of thing. But it was a very uh, homogenous group geographically, culturally, um, and ideologically. And Fox, though based in New York, <laughs> was um, the thing that, contributed to the diversity in media. And I always just thought it was hilarious that, you know, they want to, it was one of the first times, and it, this is applicable across all sorts of things, where it really dawned on me that the way people on the left use the word diversity um, actually doesn't mean diversity. Uh, it means enforced conformity. Anyway, I used to defend Fox on those grounds all the time. You know, my wife and I used to say, thank God for Fox News, not because I was getting a paycheck, but um, because we would say that before I got a paycheck, but because they would cover stories that nobody else would cover. Um, part of, you know, uh, you know, Britt Hume used to talk about this. Um, uh, you know, part of Roger Ailes' philosophy was to just simply reject the New York Times' role in um, setting the agenda for that day's journalism. Like if there was a front page story, that story became the story for... Uh, the wire services for the network news for the other cable networks um and and sometimes obviously it was justified right if a war breaks out you got to cover it because it's a war right if um someone's assassinated you cover it because someone's assassinated but a lot of the time i'm not saying that the new york times manufactured news they just decided from the menu of things that were news, what was going to be the thing that everybody talked about, what people were going to write op-eds about, what people were going to talk about on TV and cover and do follow-up stories on and chase the story. 
And and Ailes's idea was if if they're going that way, we'll go the other way. It's a kind of a dispatching idea in some ways. Um, and I think that evolved into something very different. But as a journalistic impulse and instinct, there was a lot to recommend it. Um, and it was one of the things that contributed to um, a diversity of viewpoints in the in in the in the news environment. And um, anyway, so I I think the as I put, I think I put it yesterday on the Dispatch podcast. I am violently nuanced about a lot of this stuff, um, by which I mean that I have extremely strong opinions um, that are very negative towards Fox, but I also have extremely negative opinions, or or at least uh, uh, deeply held opinions about some of the unjustified criticisms of Fox going back, and. Um, you know, and if you, again, if you look at these filings, uh, the times that the news people are cited or referenced tend to be times where they are bolstering Dominion's position that the opinion side was irresponsible and grotesque. And, you know, so Brett Baer was, you know, was a friend and now I was on special board for a long time. He was saying, we got to stop this stuff. There is no election fraud. This is bogus. Um, and the reason Dominion will cite that is because they want it known in, they want it known that internally at Fox, the people most qualified and most authorized to tell management what the facts were, were being ignored. And, um, and so when people say, oh, Fox News isn't about news, you got to at least give a little credit to the people who are actually about news over there. Jen Griffin, uh, um, you know, Brett. Bill Salmon when he was there, Chris Starwalt when he was there. Um, I should probably stop naming people because I'll just get them in more trouble if they're still at Fox. Um, but there are people there who actually cared about the facts and the and 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 the truth, including the people in the brain room, um, which is like their internal think tank, which just got sidelined. And um, and so anyway, I think the way to think about Fox is that. Uh, they basically, there's a line in the, in the, in the filing in one of the briefs or whatever they call them, where, you know, Tucker talks about how the only thing that Trump is really good at is destroying things. And I think he's absolutely right. And I think that the, the truth of the matter is, is that a lot of this has less to do with the Fox News as it had been run prior to 2015 um, than it has to do with the fact that, that Trump ruined Fox. Um, and the, re the way he ruined Fox is that the highest rated people um, and the people most concerned about ratings and money and revenue simply decided that, that their job was to give uh, the most loyal part of its audience everything that it wanted. And this comes through glaringly in, in, the, in these briefs. Again, read them. It's just obvious. When they're talking about brand protection when they're, you know, they're not, when they're talking about brand protection, they're not talking about protecting their brand as a good journalistic organization. What they're talking about is protecting their brand as a safe harbor where you can stick your head completely up Trump's ass and no one will correct you. Um, and that's, uh, that's what the brand had become. They had basically um, created a monster in their audience and I'm not saying everybody in the audience is a monster. I'm talking about in the aggregate, this creature, this thing that they created by allowing the audience to watch TV as if it was a choose your own adventure story and um, came into full view 
when during the uh, aftermath of the election, when Trump starts saying it was stolen, it was rigged, whatever, and the second Fox starts putting stuff on air that says that's not true, or the second Newsmax or OAN starts putting stuff on air saying it is true, people switched over there. And they were like, oh, we cannot let our audience go over there um, in search of conspiratorial, untrue garbage. We've got to give them some of that to keep them here. And that's what they did. And it's really just as simple as that. Um, and this distinction, you know, which I've been making forever, and which is really important to some of the journalists, at the news side journalists at Fox, and it should be, um, this distinction between the news division and the opinion division, it's still real. It just doesn't matter anymore. Um, not, not in the way the place is perceived from the outside. The new, and this is a criticism I've had of, of friends of mine on the news side for a very long time. They will not fight for the greater brand of the place. Chris Wallace would only fight for the integrity of his show. Brett, he's a, he's a good guy, but he fought for the integrity of Special Report, um, and there was nobody there, with the exception to a certain extent of Bill Salmon, um, who fought for the integrity of the entire network in a public and robust way. And Salmon didn't do it as a, you know, as a public matter. And it's a tragedy. And so the thing is, like, on the outside, this distinction between news and opinion is lost on normal viewers. In fact, it's a distinction that doesn't even exist at, say, MSNBC. Um, and, it, you know, it does exist at CNN, but um, um, I'm not... I don't, th I don't think it's unreasonable to say it was hard to find during the heat of the sort of resistance moment during the Trump presidency. I think CNN is trying hard to right the ship, um, and we'll see how it goes. But um, the, this, the, the news opinion distinction is, has just basically become meaningless because what has happened is that the opinion side people, you know, particularly in prime time, they care basically about ratings, right? And their own cults of personality, which they consider deeply tied up in ratings. I think a lot of people think this is all about money and ratings. And obviously there's a lot of truth to that, but that's not the whole story. Like, for example, I honestly think that if you told Laura Ingram, they would cut her, sa her salary in half. And she could, if, you, if they told Laura or Tucker, um, or certainly Hannity, you know, uh, um, although you hear stories about how he's burnt out, but like certainly Hannity 10 years ago, if you told any of those guys, okay, uh, we know you can't get jobs anywhere else. You're sort of have these golden handcuffs here at Fox. Um, we're going to cut your salaries in half. I think they'd all stay and do it. Um, because it's a lot of it has to do with the psychic reward of being popular and recognized and, and having cults of personality. Um, I may be wrong about that, but I don't think I am. Anyway, the opinion side guys, they set, the agenda, because they're so obsessed with ratings, they look at it so granularly. The executives obviously all look at it granularly. They measure, they measure these things in 15-minute increments. And um, if something isn't playing with the audience, they, they put something else on TV. You know, if, if Mikey won't eat the gruel, you know, they put bacon and eggs. They figure out what people want. And the opinion side was better at doing this because they had no competing considerations.
the way news people do, who actually have to respond to exogenous events outside of the editorial planning room, right? They have the uh, news, events, things happening in the world, including things that are, that are disturbing or inconvenient to the worldview of a lot of people in the audience. And so the, the opinion side, you know, figured out whether it was immigration or fentanyl or, or, or under Biden's laptop or um, Benghazi or, you know, you go down a long list, right? And, I'm, and I think some of these things are absolutely legitimate. I think all of them are legitimate issues. The question isn't whether they're worth covering. It's whether they're worth covering to the exclusion of other things um, and at, you know, at a very high decibel level. And over time, the opinion side basically figured out the issues that the audience wanted to hear about. And then the news side came in the next day for daytime TV and basically just sprinkled facts on it, like so much seasoning to set up the next night's opinion thing. And I remember getting really angry about how I would have to do, you know, like the Bill Hemmer daytime thing. And I like Bill and I like Dana and I like all those people, you know, but I would get really pissed off because, um, look, I mean, this is before all the Trump stuff, or maybe it was during the Trump stuff. I don't give a rat's ass, you know, but it was like, um, you know, it was when I was still, you know, able to, you know, have pleasant conversations with a lot of these people. I don't, I don't think I'm the smartest pundit in the world. I'm still a little bit of an awe. People like Krauthammer and George Will, who I think are better than me and all that kind of stuff. But I just got to tell you, I've known Tucker for 25 years. I've known Hannity for a long time. I've known Laura for a really long time. Um, I, don't, I don't think Laura and Tucker are dumb. I think they're smart people. I think they know some things I don't know. I think I know some things they don't know. Um, I think they're very, 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 very wrong about some things. I think Hannity's pretty dumb. Um, but uh, um, whether they're smarter than me, dumber than me, whatever, I don't invest a huge amount of significance in what they say. I don't think that these are people who simply by virtue of their utterances are making news. And yet on the daytime side, you would have um, these episodes where um, like we, they would just simply play a clip from some diatribe or opening statement from, you know, Laura or, or Tucker or I guess O'Reilly before that or Hannity. And then ask, like, people who are supposed to be there to analyze the news to analyze their punditry. And that was a way of, like, sort of massaging into the news side more and more of this opinion stuff. And, and then you get the Trump part come in. And that's really, I think that's the key to this whole story, is that these people got corrupted by proximity to power, by trips to Mar-a-Lago, by the cult of personality stuff, by the demands of the audience. And... um and because that corruption was very popular and translated into good ratings, uh, Susan Scott and the people in the C-suites just let it happen. And um, I, I, I think that the causality of this is more complicated than a simple sort of Marxist analysis. This is, oh, they wanted money. Um, it has to do with the way Trump has corrupted so many institutions of the right and so many individual people on the right. Um, you know, look, I mean, I, I will stop now. I know I'm, I, I'm, I'm working myself up into one of those like John Belushi rat, rants from, um, you know, early days of SNL news where he would be like, and don't even get me started on the Irish and their mothers. And then he would flip out and have a seizure and fall on the floor. So I should probably switch gears. 
Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could... Look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, of what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. But let's switch gears to CPAC for a second. In 2017, Kellyanne Conway said that uh, CPAC should now be called TPAC, and she was right. CPAC, which was always problematic, always had um, a high grift to quality ratio, but was still worthwhile for all sorts of reasons, in part because you just needed everybody to be able to get together. It was, you know, it was a convention more than it was a, anything else. And now it's just, it's an utterly corrupt thing. Um, either financially, intellectually, ideologically, or all of the above. I mean, uh, Carrie Lake is giving the keynoter at the Reagan dinner. Matt Schlapp, who, you know, is a pay-for-play guy and always has been, um, you know, is still around despite these allegations against him, which I think, you know, we'll wait and see and all that kind of stuff. But I had to bet they're all true. You have, uh, you have the thing just basically being... An ATM, you know, it's funny, last year they had Victor Orban, and so, you know, now they have to have the authoritarian slot, um, so they're going to have Bolonsaro this year, um, and of course they're going to have Trump, and this is not Reagan's CPAC, this is not Reagan's party, this is not Reagan's conservatism, and um, the def, you know, I saw this thing on, the, on, on TV this morning where they were um, asking Sarah Palin, uh, 
what she made of the fact that Kevin McCarthy and Mitch Daniels and uh, I can't remember who else weren't attending CPAC this year, but people like you are. And she said, well, you know, I mean, she's like, if you kept going down the list, I'd say it's because I'm, I'm not a rhino. It's like, yeah, that's the the distinction here. Um, it's, you know, again, it was always a weird place, um, but it was kind of a fun weird. Um, <laughs> so the other night on the Dispatch Live thing, Kevin Williamson was on and he, he had this great analogy where he said, you know, if you've never been to CPAC, you know, you're young, some eager sort of conservative, um, you know, you would always read these things and national review or the weekly standard or new republic or human events or whatever about these important panel meetings and things at CPAC, whatever. But then you actually go and he compared it to like, uh, the first time you go to a nude beach and you have all these ideas in your head of, you know, what it's going to be like, like, you know, this sort of late night Cinemax scene of really hot women, um, all, you know, luxuriating in the sun and then you see what it really is, and it's really kind of a disappointment. And I think he's absolutely, I think it's incredibly apt. Um, so what else? Um, oh, I could go on about this cancel culture crap. Um, you know, to Trump yesterday, I think it was yesterday, maybe it was the day before, um, you know, posted this thing on Truth Social about how Rupert Murdoch needs to fire everybody who didn't agree with the stolen election stuff and he needs to stop throwing. Uh, hosts under the table, which, um, you know, is not a thing. Um, um, and, uh, and it just reminded me, you know, like of how one of the last times I was able to say any, given an opportunity to say anything critical of Trump when I was still at Fox was when Howie Kurtz had me on his uh, media show. And, uh, he wanted to do a big thing about the problem with left-wing cancel culture, with cancel culture, right? When, you know, and, and there were good examples of cancel stuff at Politico, because there were people you know, got their panties in a bunch about Ben Shapiro writing something or being a guest editor or something, and there was the Kevin Williamson thing and whatever. I can't remember what the news hooks were. And, um, and I said, yeah, you know, these are all real problems, but it's worth pointing out this is an American problem, and it's not really just a left-wing problem. Um, you know, for example, the head of the Republican Party and the president of the United States believes in canceling people whenever he has the opportunity. I mean, he's been trying to get me fired from this network and from National Review. Um, and the long pause and, and shock on Howie's face that, you know, I didn't stick to script was really kind of enjoyable. And I, I like Howie, but like, um, enough already. And, uh, um, that's the sort of thing. So like, you know, Trump wants people fired. People on the right want people fired all the time for saying the wrong thing, for being, you know, uh, contrary. And this, there's this, and this is why, you know, I, I get a lot of grief from people for my both sidesism, but I'm, I, every day I sink deeper into both sidesism because I am not going to let go of a lot of my criticisms of the left. I've just had to let go of a lot of my defenses of the right. You know, speaking of CPAC, you know, when, Matt Schlapp wanted uh, Milo Yiannopoulos to be, invited Milo Yiannopoulos to be a keynoter. Um, and, you know, I went after him pretty hard for it. You know, his response was, we're conservatives. We believe in open and fair exchange of ideas. We believe in free speech and free debate. And we're not afraid to sort of take on uh, contrary points of view. And 
I cannot stand that kind of language from people like Schlapp because it's just utter, unmediated, um, undiluted bovine excrement. It's just nonsense. Um, you know, Mitt Romney's not invited to speak at CPAC. Um, you know, all of these people who, um, you know, the talk radio types, the cable news types talk about how, you know, the left is full of, is, is all in its bunker and is afraid to debate and they need trigger warnings, this and trigger warnings that the right friggin' needs trigger warnings too. Um, the right is afraid to debate. Um, you know, you have all, I mean, I'm not talking about the people, you know, that I have on this podcast. I'm not talking about my friends and colleagues at AEI or national review or commentary or, you know, Washington Examiner. I'm not talking about the professional, serious opinion journalists and conservative journalists generally and conservative think tank policy guys. I'm talking about the people who um, orient themselves towards fan service for the base. You know, Sean Hannity does not have sober-minded, serious critics of Trump on that show. Um, nor does Tucker. Nor does Laura. Because the last thing they want to do is give credibility or legitimacy to um, well-grounded factual criticisms that, out, that would invariably and inevitably point out their own hypocrisy for um, becoming such apologists for garbage and nonsense. Um, it's just all over the place, this stuff. And, and this does not let the left off the hook in the slightest. It's sort of like, like again, so like, you know, CPAC doesn't actually believe in free speech. Uh, when I got into these stupid fights on Twitter with the Newsbusters Media Research Center guys, you know, the Bozell shop, um, you know, some of these guys will tell me, well, look, we're, we just call them like we see them. We're media critics, blah, 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 blah. Well, I've looked, I keep looking to see if they've said a thing to say about these Dominion filings, a single word about it. I haven't found it. Maybe a tweet exists. Uh, maybe an offhand comment exists. But you know that if anything roughly analogous came out where you had um, uh, executives at MSNBC or CNN or the New York Times saying anything like this kind of stuff from the left, but how we can't piss off our audience by admitting that Fauci's wrong or whatever, um, they would go to the mattresses on it days on end. Um, I would get into these arguments with uh, people like Molly Hemingway throughout the Trump years where, you know, everything, she constantly turned it into a, well, you know, look at the New York Times. Whenever there was something that was tri criticized with Trump, it become like a look at the New York Times kind of thing. Look, what the New look how the New York Times reported this. And like, first of all, I was like, the New York Times is not freaking president of the United States. Um, but the response was, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm a me I've been a media critic all my life. I criticize the media. Where is the criticism of Fox? Where is the, even the, um, this, you know, if these allegations are true, this would be troubling stuff on the right. I have not seen a lot of it, um, including from, you know, a lot of friendly outlets. And I think part of the problem is, is that Fox itself refuses to acknowledge that this thing is even going on. Its own viewers aren't hearing about it. But, um, you know, if you were, it's one thing if you don't do media stuff, and I think the right does way too much, obsesses, I've said this for years, is obsessed, way, is way too obsessed with media criticism stuff. But if you've been obsessed with media criticism stuff for the last five years, um, and then you just simply ignore this, stop calling yourself a media critic, right? I mean, that's just not what you're doing. You're doing something else. And 
doesn't mean your criticisms of the New York Times and of NBC and CNN aren't valid or don't have a point. I mean, it depends on the specifics. Um, if you're going to have a standard about these kinds of things, have a standard that applies to friendly media as well. And it just, I, I've, I've seen really depressingly little of that. All right, let's move on to something else. I really apologize. I just, because I'm not going to write about this for a while. And I just, again, I could go on for another hour about some of this stuff. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Um, so the student loan thing. Oh, I should say. So I know a lot of listeners of this podcast are not subscribers to the dispatch, and that makes me sad. And I don't mean that in a sarcastic way. I mean that in a sincere way. Um, but um, we opened up the Wednesday G-File uh, to non-subscribers. You can read it yourself. You do have to plug in your email, but you're not going to get charged and you just go into the free list and you can turn off. You don't need to get, you're not going to receive things or whatever. Uh, you're not going to, you know, it, it, it's fine, but that's just the system that we have right now. Um, but you can read it for free. Take a look at it. I think it's a good way of getting at a lot of the issues I talk about on here a lot. Um, I start by doing this hypothetical, you know, this famous hypothetical thing, you know, Twilight Zone about it. There was a movie about it. Um, it's sort of a standard thought experiment in ethics of if I offered you a million dollars to press a button and I told you that if you press the button, a random person you never knew um, somewhere would die, um, would you do it? And a lot of people would do it. A lot of people would do it. And, or at least I should be, I should back up. A lot of people say they would do it. And, um, which I think in and of itself is shameful. And, um, anyway, the reason I brought it up was that, you know, uh, that's murder, right? I mean, ethically, uh, there's no difference between pressing that button and, um, me giving you a sniper rifle and saying, shoot someone you've never met in that crowd. Um, you know, and I'll give you a million dollars. It's still murder for hire, right? I mean, the fact that you don't know the person um, just makes it easier for you to get away with it. It doesn't mean uh, that you're any less evil for for doing it, right? And actually, that's not the reason why I brought it up. But the re I, I start the thought experiment, I start the piece that way to get into this point about how liberalism, again, in the classical conception, you know, uh, was a system created to deny people in power, the power to do that kind of thing, right? So like a lot of the people who say, oh, sure, it's worth doing because people die all the time and with a million dollars, I could save the lives of somebody or whatever, blah, 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 blah. Um, that kind of uh, ends justify the means, self-justification, self-rationalization is the logic of kings and dictators and totalitarians um, and emperors going way back. Let's hang a few of those people to send the right message to everybody else, and it'll be better in, in the aggregate. It's for the greater good. And what liberalism does, was conceived of doing, is 
denying what what Burke and Locke and these others would call arbitrary power to um, those in charge. You need, it's not to say that the state can't kill people. State kills people. Um, but it needs to do so in accordance with external, clear rules. Um, and that those rules are informed by the idea that all human beings have innate dignity, that they are sovereign, that, um, as Locke would put it, the, uh, that we are captains of ourselves. And obviously, I'm not going to get into the weeds on it, but liberalism has failed to do this many, many times in the past. But the principle is the right one. It is the principle behind human rights. It is the principle behind natural rights. It's the principle behind um, the Constitution, which says that, you know, the right to life, right to self-defense, um, the right to be secure in your papers in your home, the right to speak, all, uh, your conscience, the right to worship as you please. These are the things that a decent, you know, liberal democratic society protects. And the way it protects them is by denying those in charge the ability to simply do what they want according to whim. And it doesn't matter what the rationalization is, right? It doesn't matter that, you know, um, let's put it this way. If you could somehow come up with a scenario where if I'm president of the United States and um, I push this button and it kills one American but prevents uh, a doomsday bomb going off that would destroy all of North America, um, I'd press it, right? You don't have to be um, uh, totally purist about this. But you need to have an acknowledgement that most of the time, someone's conception of the greater good um, is subject to debate, is, is, is subject to falsifiability, subject to human error. And so what you need are systems and processes in place that ensure that any serious decision that is made by government is um, made in accordance with the law, made in accordance with the Constitution, and done so through a process that gives the person making the decision the legitimate authority to do it in the first place. Um, that's sort of what, you know, liberal theory is about. Um, that's what sort of any halfway decent conception of what the role of the state is about um, is, you know, is not giving unchecked power to any individual or institution um, that allows them to make up the rules as they go along. And the reason why I'm telling you all this, or this is why I started all this way, is because this is how I look at this student loan thing. Um, I don't really care whether you think it's a good policy or not. Um, I don't even really care if you think it's just or morally required or... or some other way obligatory um, because of the suffering of people with a lot of student debt. If you want it to be a policy, pass a law. You know, write it down, vote on it. Have the people who actually are supposed to write laws write the law and, and make it the law. And I'll still just disagree with the policy, but I actually sincerely believe that what Biden is doing here or trying to do here is lawless. And if you 
look so they're they're grounding it largely in this thing called the Heroes Act, which was intended, which was passed in I think two thousand three, and intended to um, justify, intended to offer some relief to the families of deployed soldiers um, or wounded soldiers or returned soldiers when it came to things like student loans and and that kind of thing. Sounds per- per- perfectly decent thing to do, um, and regardless, it was lawful because they passed a law. And then what Biden is trying to say, and if you read the excerpts that we have from the Office of Legal Counsel's briefing on this, they are not, they do not think this is a slam, their own position is a slam dunk argument. They're sort of like, well, you could argue this or you could say that. Um, But the Biden position is that the HEROES Act, because it has this language that says um, you have, that the Secretary of Education is authorized to waive or modify the um, you know, debt in, during an emergency, um, that therefore it can simply forgive and can't or cancel the debt of, I don't know, I don't know what the number is, 10 million people, whatever the number of, however many people it is, but like a half a billion dollars of student debt, um, because of the pandemic emergency. Now the pandemic emergency is ending, right? The Biden administration has said it's ending, um, I mean, and we all know it's actually over. Um, but this idea that Congress intended this 20 years after the act was passed, um, I just think does not pass, um, any reasonable test. It is, just, I think it's just garbage. I think it's pretextual. I think it's a power grab. Um, and the fact that the constituency uh, that is going to wildly disproportionately benefit from this just happens to be core to the democratic coalition is not a coincidence and is not something that we should just sort of overlook. Um, now you can say that the fact that people struggling with student debt, disproportionately people of color and all that kind of stuff, the fact that they're part of the democratic coalition makes the democratic party a better party. Fine. Tell yourself whatever stories you want to tell yourself. That's great. But the simple fact is, is that president doesn't have this authority. And, um, and this sort of gets to tie it back to what I was talking about earlier about people saying, well, I'm a media critic or, um, I'm against cancel culture. Um, unless you are willing to do a rigorous inventory of your position and look for examples of where these principles that you're, 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 you're passionately applying to the other side you need to figure out whether they can be applied to your own because otherwise you actually don't have, uh, an actual standard. What, what, you know, it's like, you know, behind every double standard is an unstated single standard, right? Um, if you only care about these things when they're inconvenient to the other side, you actually don't care about these things. And, um, and so we hear a lot about how terrible populism is. I've written about how terrible populism is for 20 years. Um, uh, this is populism, right? It's also married to a sort of elitism kind of thing. Let's just let the experts decide. But this is the argument for doing this. And this is what gets me so frustrated. The argument for doing this is that, um, um, that and, I, and, I, and I, when I mean this, I mean this like in terms of how the public debate is unfolding. You know, you say, well, I think this is against the law. And then they say, um, yeah, but people, people are suffering. And I say, yeah, but this is against the law. And I say, yeah, but, but people really want this. Um, and I say, yeah, but this is against the law. 
And they say, yeah, but look at who would benefit. And the responses to this is against the law are all garbage. I don't, I'm not saying that the, the sympathies and the empathies and the concerns that generate those replies are garbage. It's perfectly fine to be concerned about these people. It's perfectly fine to want to do something about these people. It's perfectly fine to want to forgive their debt. I mean, I disagree with you, but I, I, I get it. That's fine. But you need a law. And, you know, the other, what set me off about this is I was listening to NPR the other morning and um, Steve Inskeep starts talking about how there's this AP story about how some of the possible beneficiaries of Biden's plan were seated in the courtroom. And they tell the Associated Press about how they were offended that the Supreme Court was talking about legalities. They were kind of insulted that the Supreme Court was getting bogged down in the meaning of words like wave and modify when people are suffering. Well, that's just a populist argument gussied up in sort of polite speech. Like, you know, that's the same argument from all sorts of pro-Trump people about um, you know, the need to sort of stop worrying about legal niceties and just build the wall or whatever. Um, uh, it's, a more, it's a moral equivalent of war argument. It's just like we've, we've got to stop worrying about the rules and just do what we want. Um, and I understand that the populism of the right is more recognizable to people who worry about populism and nationalism because the way history has been taught for the last 75 years is that the only populism and nationalism you should worry about is from the right. But there's a lot of populism and nationalism in American history from the left. Um, again, paranoid style American politics isn't just about the right. It's about the left too. Now it's inconvenient because the guy who coined that phrase, um, Richard Hofstetter, the historian was one of the worst abusers of this point insofar as he, basically only aimed his criticisms rightward um, in terms of the, the because he was like besotted by Theodore Adorno and the stuff about the authoritarian personality, which I've talked about before, and I guess I will talk about again, but not now. Um, but just because something you want to do is nice doesn't mean that you should be less concerned about the lawlessness of it. I mean, maybe you should be less concerned, okay? Like, that's fine. I guess like it should offend you more if Biden wants to kill every firstborn child in America. Okay. That's not nice. And it's lawless. Um, and at the same time, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be concerned that if Biden wants to give every firstborn child a million dollars, um, that's much nicer than killing them, but it's equally lawless. Um, and he just doesn't have the authority for it. The, the, the point of liberalism is to get rid of personalist leadership, right? Personalist is this fancy dumb word for saying what the supreme leader says goes, right? That the, that the law is, the law or policy is generated like lightning bolts from the brow of Zeus who is ever in charge, in charge. That's one of the reasons why China is getting itself into such a hot mess is that Xi is moving towards what political scientists call, you know, uh, personalist or personalized or personal leadership, right? Is this, he no longer really cares about letting the bureaucracy run it, the mandarins, the party, you know, people, the experts. 
It's really just what he says goes. That's what the way Putin runs Russia. Laws are passed to ratify and legitimize his personal whims. And the whole point of liberalism is you can do or liberal democratic capitalism or democratic liberalism, whatever phrase you want to put it. But the point about it is you can do a lot. Um, you can make this a socialist country under um, liberalism. Uh, um, but you can't make it a communist country. You can't make it a totalitarian country and remain liberal um, because we're bounded by the Constitution, which gives specific, clear powers to certain leaders in certain institutions which have certain clear responsibilities. And we live in a society now where the populist want kings and they hate kings from the other side, right? They, they, cry, they do all of this sort of, I hate the deep state. I hate, I hate picking winners and losers. I hate, um, uh, you know, the corruption of the other side. But they got no problem with the exact same phenomena on their own side. And I just, I stand athwart all of that. Um, if you want to do really bad things, do it lawfully, do it the right way. That gives it legitimacy. And it's sort of fascinating to me. Like the Washington Post has this piece that has this editorial that says, essentially what Biden is doing is unjustifiable and it's a, it's a power grab and it's, it's overreach and it's an abuse. Um, but the Supreme Court shouldn't knock it down. Now, their argument, I think, is more plausible than a lot of people um, on the right make it. I, I don't agree with it, but I think it's more plausible. Their argument is, at least in part, that the plaintiffs in the student loan thing don't have standing. And if you don't have standing, or if you, give the, if you grant them standing, right, the ability to bring the suit. This is the thing in our law. I know most of you know this, but just to be clear, standing just means that, like, you have to be personally wrong in order to bring suit. And the reason we have that rule is that if you didn't, people would just sue about stuff that they don't like, right? They would say, I really don't like Trump's policy for this or Biden's policy for this. I don't like the wall, so I'm going to sue you even though it does nothing to me, right? And it would just clog up the courts and um, create a hot mess and it would politicize the courts because then they would have to like get into all sorts of things that they don't want to get into. So I get the concern about protecting standing. Um, um, I have my, you know, reasonable disagreements, but I think it's, it's, it's a serious, legitimate concern. But what enrages me about the Washington Post position and the position of a lot of people who are making that argument is they seem to be more angry at the idea that the Supreme Court would knock it down than angry at Biden at putting in, putting the Supreme Court in this position in the first place. And this sort of gets to my, you know, longstanding thing. And you know, I get made fun of a lot by people. Oh, you care about norms and, you know, but my norms and uh, I care about norms a lot. And the idea that conservatives aren't supposed to care about norms is so ass poundingly stupid um, that I just I have a lot of contempt for people who call themselves conservatives and say they don't care about norms. What is conservatism without caring about norms, you know, and tradition? and right and wrong and, and manners and these kinds of things. And, um, but anyway, I care about norms and democratic norms, political norms, moral norms. I care about them. You know, I used to have a dog named Norm, you know, great basset hound. Um, and part of my argument has always been that like, 
part of the problem with Trump's violation of norms is it gives permission to people on the other side to violate norms too. And, um, you know, I mean, just as an analogy, Democrats get rid of the filibuster for sub-Supreme Court, Supreme Court, nom- uh, court nominees. And, and McConnell says, don't do this, because if you do this, we will, we will get rid of it for Supreme Court nominees when we get in power. The Democrats do it anyway. Republicans are true to their word. They get rid of this norm. Now the Democrats say, well, you did that, so I'm going to get rid of, we're going to get rid of the legislative filibuster. And so it goes, right? And that kind of thing happens in the much more informal world of, gosh, look at this guy violating norms. He is such a threat to everything that we believe in. We, that justifies us violating norms. And so if you think what Biden did is wrong or is trying to do is wrong. Um, I get saying, Hey, Supreme court, two wrongs don't make a right. You shouldn't, you know, violate, uh, your norms just because this guy violated norms, but you should be really friggin' angry at Biden for, for putting the court in this position in the first place. And yet you don't hear any of that, right? Because we live in this world where like the president is just a hero and you want him to succeed and you don't care if what he's doing is unconstitutional or lawless. And, um, and, you know, and this is a problem for every president. Uh, you know, I didn't notice it until under Obama, but, um, um, well, I was in a little bit under W, but like it didn't, wasn't so glaringly obvious to me until Obama. And now it is just so clear that presidents are the heroes in a passion play for one team or another team. And the team that's rooting for them really doesn't care if they violate constitutional norms, if they violate democratic norms, if they bend the rules or break the rules, so long as they deliver victory. And the other team only cares about those rules when the other team successfully breaks them, but never when their own side breaks them. And so what Biden is, shame on Biden for putting the Supreme Court in this position, if that's how the Washington Post sees it. Shame on him. But you don't hear any shame on Biden thing, right? Because what he's trying to do is a quote unquote good thing, a nice thing, or take the quotation marks off, a good thing, a nice thing. He sincerely cares about people with debt who just happen to be really important to his reelection chances. Fine. But if we're only going to say that populism is bad, that rule breaking is bad, that norm breaking is bad, that going around the constitution is bad when the other team does it, um, or when it's for things that I don't like, then you actually don't believe in these things. You know, one of the most eye-opening things for me was, uh, I remember, I don't know, first or second year that uh, Clarence Thomas was on the Supreme Court, there was this, uh, he, he got, there was a decision about a prison guard or a prison inmate who was really savagely beaten um, by prison guards. And Thomas wrote this position, held, held that... Um, it wasn't unconstitutional. Now, I'm open to the argument that it was unconstitutional. That's not my point. But I think his point was really very useful for me and has sort of shaped a lot of my thinking about the Constitution ever since, which is, and it's a theme I bring up here all the time, which is, you know, bad things can be constitutional and good things can be unconstitutional. And Thomas's point was, look, what these guards did was terrible. I believe that they were criminally prosecuted for it. They could also be professionally sanctioned for it, um, for, you know, for lesser kind of things. There are all sorts of 
places where you could punish this um, that didn't necessarily mean it was unconstitutional. And I think this is just a really important way of thinking about these things. And um, I just don't think a lot of people do think about them. And that's All right, so done with that point. But then this is the point I actually wanted to get to about this, which is new and not in the in that G file. Um, so I'm listening to advisory opinions, which is hosted by uh, Sarah Isger, but has, but frequently has uh, the New York times as David French on it. And uh, David makes this point, And I, I think his analysis is probably a hundred percent correct. I am not, there's not a disagreement with David, but David says something along the lines of if they can get past the standing question, um, there's no way the court upholds Biden's move. It's just, it's so clearly lawless. Um, it's so clearly um, is contrary to the way the majority views the Constitution. Um, it is fatally flawed and will die. Now, um, I defer to David on that analysis. Um, and I already said that I understand why you have to have some sort of notion about uh, standing, otherwise the courts are going to just sort of, uh, you know, suffocate. So I, I get that too. But we're in a really weird place when you think about it, right? Let's just say, let's, again, let's take the student loan part of it out of it. Let's say that the president of the United States, you know, this is an example I'm using the G file. Let's like Donald Trump wants to um, issue an exec, issues an executive order that uh, cancels all second home vacation home mortgage debt, right? Which is in effect just a massive giveaway to affluent, um, disproportionately Republican voters, right? It's a giveaway to the boat parade people. In fact, let's say that he is just simply going to cancel all um, debt on boats above $2 million, right? So that's a real giveaway to the boat parade people. And he's going to use that money to build the wall or whatever. Let's just stipulate for the sake of my thought experiment, that this is just wildly, obscenely unconstitutional. But let's say for whatever reason, there's no standing. No one can figure out how there's no standing to sue about this. Now, I assume that there would be standing to sue. I don't know what it is, but let's just say for the sake of argument that no one could figure out a way to get the Supreme Court to hear the case. Isn't it just weird? Don't you think it's just a little disturbing that you can have people agree that something is absolutely lawless and unconstitutional, but so long as you can't figure, a, figure out how to um, find, you know, unlock the combination lock of getting access to the courts, that it just gets to happen. And um, that's sort of where we are on student loans and on a lot of things. And, you know, I don't want to say it's a flaw of the Constitution, but it feels like a flaw of the Constitution. I think that the reason why it feels like a flaw of the Constitution gets back to my point about how um, Congress is, uh, you know, is a eunuch. Um, because there was a time in this country when if the president just simply nakedly usurped Congress's power and did things that Congress did not, did not want or did not intend, um, Congress would punish the executive branch. But Congress doesn't want to do that anymore. Congress is comfortable with um, executive lawlessness. Um, 
particularly when it's executive branch lawlessness from its own team. And the I and so again, sort of getting back to this point, shame on Congress, shame on everybody that's putting the Supreme Court in the position of having to be the only grown-ups as an institutional matter in the federal government, in our in our separation of powers arrangement. Um because we put the Supreme Court in this no-win situation all the time, whether it was Obamacare or whatever. Everybody else abdicates their proper roles and then demand that the Supreme Court either stop us before we kill again or ratify um, how we're getting away with murder. That ends up having half the country who likes the policy or hates the country or hates the policy um, thinking that the Supreme Court is being political when in, when the real problem is, is they put the Supreme Court in a sort of superposition to borrow a thing from physics that makes it impossible for them not to be political. Um, anyway, something to chew on. Uh, I've gone long. I got so much else to rant about. Oh, I mean, you know, this, uh, if you'll f- forget at this point, if you're still listening, you were probably inclined to uh, indulge even more self-indulgement, um, but maybe you're not. So I, I began with this thing about um, how I have these things behind the scenes that I don't really talk about, but I allude to, and I make it sound more cryptic than I should, and yada, 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 all fair criticism. And I, I just want to um, take two seconds to say how much I hate Santander Bank. Um, if this forecloses the opportunity for Santander to advertise on the Remnant or at the dispatch, so be it. Let Steve and those guys um, come at me. Um, so, you know, I don't talk about it a lot, but I'm, you know, I'm settling my mom's estate. Uh, it's really unpleasant for all the obvious reasons. Um, it's not some massive estate. I am not sitting back, you know, fat and happy, f- flying on private jets like Sean Hannity or anything like that. But it's stuff I got to deal with, and it's, you know... It's some of the stuff is significant for all sorts of reasons, you know, either financial or otherwise for me. So it's it's stuff I got to deal with and it's complicated and it's bureaucratic and it's depressing. And I have spent a lot of time last since last October on hold with various institutions. And I got to say the one that is. uh, The leader of all of my negative experiences has been Santander Bank. So at some point in the past, my dad, so my, my, my late brother and his late wife had a very modest apartment on the Upper West Side. And um, it's left to me. And at some point, I think my dad, but maybe my brother, I don't know. I can't remember right now. It doesn't matter. Took out a small home equity loan on it. There wasn't much left on it when I inherited it, you know, this fall. Um, but you know, cause everything gets frozen, everything is complicated, missed some payments on it and start getting these notices about, you know, it being, um, in arrears and all that. That's all fine. It was like two, $2,500 was left on it or something like that. I, I can't, I'm not making this accusation as a matter of fact, cause I don't want to get sued. Um, I'm, I'm simply saying Santander's made it feel as if they really want to be able to confiscate this property. Um, because I owe them pennies, um, and they have made things incredibly complicated. I've sent them all the right documentation. 
I've sent them the will. I've sent them my identification. I've filled out the right forms. I've spent hours on the phone with different people being sent to different places. Um, I've sent them the letters testimony. Um, I'm the executor of the will. All these kinds of things. They will not correspond with me. They keep corresponding with my dead parents or my dead brother. And um, so at one point, I got on the phone with somebody after hours of dealing with this. And I was like, just tell me how much it is to pay off the whole thing. They refused to tell me. They said, we cannot give you that information. And I get it. They're privacy rules. You don't want, you know, strangers coming in saying, you know, that, that they should have access to these accounts. But again, I'm trying to pay the thing off, right? I am not trying to get money out of it. I'm trying to pay it off. They will not give me the information. I send them all the stuff. Still won't give me it. I'm not going to bore you with all of this. This is very self-indulgent, I know, but I'm, I'm so full of rage about it. And so I end up just, we tried to pay it. I had a friend of mine in New Jersey just go into a bank with a cashier's check. They, re, they sent it. They sent it back. They didn't want the money. It had to come from somebody on the account. Um, I finally convinced them that I could pay it off. I sent them the money. I was $300 short because I didn't know what the actual final amount was with fees or whatever. And, um, and I'm, I cannot tell you how much I am abbreviating this, right? So anyway, I sent, just to give you a sense of what's going on behind the scenes with me, I'll, I'll leave out the some of the, the addresses and stuff, but uh, this is a letter I sent uh, by certified mail this week after I got back from vacation um, to Santander. Please find and close the check for $300. This is an excess of the stated amount owed in your February 8 correspondence, correspondence sent to my deceased parents. I apologize for the delay in paying, but as I have tried to explain to various representatives of your company numerous times over the phone and in writing, my parents are no longer able to deal with these issues on account of the fact that they are no longer alive. For some reason, you keep sending them bills and warnings about the apartment at, there's the address on the Upper West Sides, about that apartment being in default. I will spare you further details of my experience with Santander Bank, save to remind you of the relevant bit. I am the sole inheritor of this property and the executor of my mother's and father's estate. As my brother, also deceased, and his wife, also deceased, no longer live there. I am the only person you should contact about this loan. I can be reached, and I give my address, blah, 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 and my phone number, and then I say, I have told you all of this before many times. Again, I am cutting you a check in excess of the amount owed because I do not trust you not to keep this nightmare alive by telling me that the interest is accrued beyond the $240.64 mentioned in the bill. Such has been the pattern of my experience with Santander Bank. But if $300 won't put an end to the worst customer service experience of my life, please contact me, and not my deceased parents, at an address I do not live at. Let me know what it is that will put an end to this. Sincerely, Jonah Goldberg. This is, um, this is my, uh, this is my white whale at this point. I mean, there are other things going on with my mom's estate that I got to deal with and blah, 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 blah. But, like, I don't want to lose this apartment for a few hundred bucks. But they send these really frightening sort of dunning letters. You're in default. We're going to seize, you know, and, and like, like, just, I feel like the gif, shut up and take my money. So anyway, I just thought I'd throw it out there. I am not asking for help with this um, from anybody, listeners out there. I just, you know, I sometimes feel like, 
people don't understand why sometimes I'm dyspeptic. Um, and, uh, and it's because of, uh, it's because of a lot of crap, but this is one of the reasons why I'm sometimes dyspeptic. Um, all right. I don't have a, well, I, I have other things I could rant about, but now I, I've definitely gone long. I just wanted to, uh, remind everybody they've actually pushed the deadline back for the AI 2023 summer honors program. It takes place in Washington, DC this June. It's an annual program all expenses paid experience for undergraduate students to come to D.C. from universities across the nation and the world for a week in June where they'll learn from top policy experts. Some of the courses we're offering at AEI, some of the courses AI is offering um, this year will cover the changing nature of warfare um, taught by AI's Corey Shockey, who's super terrific awesome, polarization and pluralism taught by uh, um, our own friend and now New York Times columnist David French, and the foundations of a uh, democratic capitalism taught by Michael Strain, our our um, in-house punching boy, but also on the remnant for economic issues, but also uh, the head of the economics department at AEI. In addition to all these seminars, students will also have the opportunity to connect with and network with other students, young professionals, and experts from across the political spectrum and public policy world. If you're a current college student, or you know someone who is and may be interested head over to AI.org or Google AI Summer Honors to learn more. Applications are due March 15th, 2023. I believe that is the Ides of March. So seriously, I highly recommend it. Um, uh, I've never known a kid who did Summer Honors who didn't get a lot out of it. Um, you'll almost surely, if you're a college student, get to meet um, Guy and maybe even meet me. Um so if you get a chance uh, and or if you know a college student who'd be interested in this stuff, um, uh, send them, send, you know, send them a note about it. And other than that, uh, please subscribe to the dispatch. Please become a member. You can check out that G file and you see what, you know, you'd be missing. And um, I apologize for the um, um, glandular um, um, excitement of 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 today's remnant but um, it's good to be back and um, I'll talk to you next time Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.